Thank you, Ashley. Um, a few weeks ago, we had a, a pretty powerfully sort of moving baptism as well when, when Muhammad was baptized. And I, I, at that time, I was like, oh, you know, I wonder, should we even preach a sermon? I mean, it's getting later on, and uh, we've just had a, what I'll call a feast of the gospel. Uh, maybe we should just not have a sermon and, and sing a closing, do communion, sing a closing song, and go home. And I still wonder if I made the right decision by preaching anyway. Uh, and I feel a little bit like that this morning. I'm going to preach anyway. <laughs> Maybe it's that work ethic thing, right? You know, you've got to earn your paycheck or something. But um, no, I, I, I believe God is, wants to speak to us this morning, and so I'm going to, to preach anyway. Um, but we won't have question and answer time after the message this week. Sorry for those who are chomping at the bit to ask. Anyhow, uh, so I had the opportunity this week to go visit uh, Brett and Shannon. They just had a baby, and uh, I got to, to see this young couple, right, with their new child and their new home and, and all that kind of stuff. And we've just seen uh, Corey and Jody uh, have Sophia baptized, you know, a new couple with their first child, all that kind of stuff. And it makes me think about when, I, when, uh, when, when Jessica and I had our first child, uh, Jonas, and he was, uh, this was back in the day when nobody trusted midwives yet, so everybody had their babies in hospitals and stuff still, so we, we did that. And uh, I remember at the, end of, uh, at the end of our hospital stay, which we dragged out as long as we possibly could, finally they give you this baby and they, you put this baby in a car seat and they literally send you out the front door with a kid. And you, I remember freaking out inside. I probably look pretty cool on the outside. But I was freaking out on the inside and thinking to myself, how on earth can you legally do this? Like, give me a baby to take home. And my wife and I, thankfully, I had a lot more faith in her than in me, but my wife and I, we have to keep this thing alive on our own, and we have to raise it, whatever that means. We had no clue really what that means. And it's so funny because when you don't have kids, you think, oh, I know how to raise a kid. It'll be easy. And then you get one and you think, the task is monumental. And I am so incredibly unqualified for the task that lies ahead of me. It's overwhelming. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a circumstance like that where you have felt like the task ahead of me is absolutely overwhelming and I certainly am completely unqualified for, for it? You know, you try to measure your potential for the task. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you started a new job or you took on a new uh, business or something like that and you think, what in the world? I am so in over my head. Or maybe... Uh, you're starting a new school. Maybe you're starting university or college and you got these aspirations about this program and you look through the syllabus and you think, I don't know how I'm ever going to pull this off. Or maybe you have a family problem. There's an issue in your family uh, that needs to be addressed, needs to be resolved, and you are just utterly terrified at the, the prospect of wading into that problem with your family because you think, what in the world do I know about how to get over this and how to deal with this? Uh, there's a, a Christian counselor, uh, preacher guy by the name of Paul Tripp. He's a pretty smart guy. And, 
And he says, you know, typically what human beings do when we, when we measure our potential is we do two things. We, we look at a task and we measure the size of the task and then we look at our track record and we compare it to the task and we say, can we pull this off or not? And we sort of make a, a judgment before we, we, we dive right into it. And often the case is, is that we think that we cannot accomplish the task and that's where all our anxiety comes from. But if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's the wrong way to go about it, frankly. It's a wrong way of measuring problems and measuring your potential to address problems. There's a better way, and that way is described beautifully in this story. And just for those guests who are here, I'm going to very quickly catch you up. Uh, we've been working through the book of Jonah together for a number of weeks now here at Grace Valley. And what we've seen is, is that Jonah is the most miserable missionary ever conceived. He's terrible, okay? He's terrible at it. And uh, God comes to him and he says, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh and, and preach there. Nineveh freaks right out and he says, I ain't going there. I'm scared to death and personally I'd rather not see those heathen pagan Slime balls get saved anyway, so he goes the exact opposite way, and God has to hunt him down, literally hunt him down, and uh, cause a crisis in his life in order for Jonah, when he gets swallowed up by this fish, and he's in the belly of this fish in the depths of the sea, in order for Jonah to realize that he has been a selfish, prideful, arrogant, my mom never told me to say jerk. Because that is a mean thing to say. But that's the kind of guy he was. And he had to realize that, that salvation came from the Lord. He actually spits those words out of his own mouth in Jonah chapter 2. That's the, the message of Jonah. And that salvation comes entirely by grace. And it is received entirely and completely as a gift. And that's the only way. And then, having made that discovery... Jonah is resurrected in a sense. He gets spit up. It's interesting that it says in the passage, you know, um, the fish vomited Jonah onto the dry land like he was bad food, you know? So he's not perfect yet, but he has come to understand salvation comes from the Lord, and that's the moment of his resurrection. But here's the thing. He's resurrected. Yay! He spit up on dry land. Yay! That's great. But there's a call that remains. The task remains, it doesn't go away, and it's a huge task, and it looks absolutely overwhelming to Jonah, but God shows him another way of, another perspective on looking at the overwhelming tasks that we have before us in our lives, and he teaches Jonah, and hopefully he teaches us, uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at that together this morning for a few minutes, and again, uh, there is a... There is an outline in the back of your bulletin. I've been struggling with appreciating, liking my outlines. Uh, this one's okay. We'll stick with it, I guess, since it's printed there. And uh, we'll use it, hopefully, as our roadmap through this text together. So here's what we learn from this amazing story as it unfolds in Jonah chapter 3. First of all, we learn that God is a God of second chances. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I, that I give you. But it says it comes to, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And that is not insignificant. 
that is actually humongous because this is the core of the Christian message. It's encapsulated in this phrase, the Lord came to Jonah a second time. See, the the core of the message of Christianity is that the God of the Bible, and that means He is the God of the universe, He is the only God that truly exists. This God is a God of second chances. He is a God of new beginnings. He is a God of fresh starts. I just mentioned to you that Jonah was a very difficult person he was proud, he was self-centered, he, uh, he, he was probably racist, he was certainly a coward. And think about this, this is God, the king of the universe who comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, you're a prophet, you have been called to be a prophet by my name. Jonah said, yes, I am a prophet, I, I, I am your mouthpiece. He says, Jonah, look, what, this is what I want you to do, I want, to go to, want you to go to this land and I want you to preach. And Jonah has the audacity to say to God, this isn't speaking to Justin Trudeau, this isn't even talking to Queen Elizabeth, this isn't even speaking to the Shah of Iran, this is God. Jonah says, no, not going to do it. Like, if you're an employer and you have employees that, you know, you say, look, we got to get this done, get this done. This is for the good of the company. And the employee goes, yeah, I'm sort of not into it. What does the employer do? I'm sure you can find another place to work. We have things to get done. I have an agenda that I am attempting to accomplish. If you're not on board, find another job. But what does God do? And if that's how it is for you, and that's how it would be for a a world ruler, imagine what it must be like to be God and to have your creation, to have your called prophet say to you, not going to do it. God literally chases him down. God is not above doing that. He chases Jonah down. He, He puts a crisis in Jonah's life. Because of his inexhaustible love, he keeps coming. He keeps coming. He doesn't give up. He continues to pursue. He comes to him again, and he says, you got another chance. Now, look, there's a lot of new faces in the building this morning. This is great. People I don't know, so I can, I can just sort of shoot at you buckshot because I don't know what's going on in your life. But I can tell you this. If you are thinking that you are too far gone if you are in any way believing the devil's lie that says there is no way back, if you have done something, if you have experienced something, if you have, uh, if you have committed some kind of sin and it has been eating you up and it is making you think that I have no way of ever having real fellowship with God again, you can know that you must not believe the lie of the devil. You can know that God is here this morning speaking to you and telling you, you can always come back. You can always turn around. You can always turn your back on evil and embrace my son because I am a God who pursues that's what I'm about I'm the God of second chances I'm the God of new beginnings I am the God of fresh starts it does not matter where you were yesterday it does not matter where you were five minutes ago I'm here and my arms are wide wide open Because God never stops coming. 
And because he never stops coming, he can call you to some insanely overwhelming tasks. Look at, look at the size of the, the calling that he puts before Jonah. Again, uh, this is verses 2 and 3. It says, go to the great city of Nineveh, proclaim, it to the, proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Now, a little bit about ancient Nineveh very quickly. Probably had a population of around 150,000. Today, we might say, hmm, is that such a big deal? That is a huge deal centuries and centuries and centuries ago. This is a big city. This city was the center of the civilized world at that time. It was the center of commerce. Like, if you could not buy it in Nineveh, you couldn't buy it anywhere. It was the center of politics because it was the empire that ruled the known world and it was the capital city of that. It was the center of culture. It was the center of everything, but it was also a tremendously evil and violent city. Even the, the king uh, acknowledges that when he calls the nation to repent of their evil deeds and their violence. And it was an extreme... So, so what does that mean? It means like it was the original sin city. There was no worldly pleasure that people denied themselves. You know, like, you know that the, the most dangerous thing that anybody can ever say is, I need to follow my heart? You know that's true, right? Maybe one of the worst pieces of advice ever given in the history of the world is follow your heart. Well, in Nineveh, everybody just followed their heart. And you know that if you were to follow your heart's desires, you would be in a big whole lot of mess. Well, they were in a big whole lot of mess because they denied themselves no pleasure, even if it was at the expense of other people. And it was an extremely dangerous place, an extremely violent place. One king of Assyria, describing what he was like, wrote this. In his battles, he said, I caused great violence, I destroyed, I demolished, I burned, I took warriors prisoner, and I impaled them on stakes before the cities. Many of the captives I burned in a fire, many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands, from others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I burned their young men and women to death. And he's celebrating this. This is the culture. This is the city. And when it says three days, you know, it took three, what does it say there? It says uh, it took three days to go through it. That could mean... Any one of three things. One is it takes three days, three days to walk across it, which would make it a really big city if you travel, say, 17 miles, 18 miles an hour, that's or a day is apparently what you do when you walk. That's big. That's long. Uh, it could mean it takes three days to kind of get a taste for the city, see all the sights and sounds of the city, maybe. Could be three days uh, is what it took to make a proper political visit. That could be what it means. The point is this, though. Regardless of what of those three it means, the point is this is a massive, massive task. How do you evangelize in a place like that? And if we use our typical metric, measure the size of the task, put my track record up against it, this is a huge task, Jonah's track record, pretty poor, you're expecting a very lousy outcome. Uh, at the beginning of summer, uh, my family, we went to go see Wicked, uh, which was not Wicked. Uh, it's, a, it's a play, it's a, a musical, and we went to go see it in Toronto. And we were at Young and Dundas Square, and there was this guy 
Like, you've, you've been to Toronto. Toronto's big, right? Toronto's high. It's energy, people everywhere, hustle and bustle, fifth largest city in North America, if I understand correctly, maybe fourth largest. It's one of the biggest. And it's just like energy there. And we were at Young and Dundas Square, and people are walking around and doing stuff. And there's this guy who has like a little microphone and a little, and a little uh, speaker, and he's standing there, and he's preaching. And everybody's ignoring this guy. Like, his voice is being completely lost in the cacophony of the city. It's like it, 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 he might as well have been standing up and screaming at the top of his lungs in a hurricane. Nobody heard a thing. And Jonah, he's a Jew in a foreign city preaching the judgment of a foreign god on this city. They're either going to laugh at him if they hear him at all, or they're going to beat the tar out of him. This little country bumpkin from Israel coming into our city and telling us that this, his God is going to preach judgment, is going to bring judgment on us. And maybe, maybe that's how you feel about tasks before you. I have to admit, there are times where I'm like, who in this city of Dundas or in the city of Hamilton, who's going to listen to a thing we have to say? Who's going to listen? Maybe you're thinking, how in the world am I actually going to raise my children? The world is changing so fast. The stuff that I have to know about, my parents never had to know anything about Facebook and Fortnite and texting and all this gobbledygook. And I'm not a good parent to begin with. I'm, I'm, I'm distracted, I get irritated, I, I'm too tired to do what I'm supposed to do as a parent. And the fact is, is that as soon as you think you've got your handle on one stage of their life, and okay, I know how to handle this stage, they grow into another stage. You've got to learn all about that stage. Or maybe you're, you have aspirations toward a certain education or a certain career and you want to go for it and you think to yourself, how on earth am I ever going to pull this off? It is so cutthroat, this industry. You've got, to, you've got to be like on all the time. You've got to work killer hours or you've got to get incredible grades and you've got to be like nasty to get ahead. Or, or maybe you want close, intimate friendships, but you are absolutely terrified of the vulnerability that's required in order to have those kinds of friendships. And so you're, you're constantly wrestling with this, with this personal, uh, emotional wall that you have up around other people. Or your minister is telling you, you know, you really need to invest in your neighborhoods for the sake of the kingdom of God. You got to get to know your neighbors. And you're like, yeah, I really want to get to know my neighbors, but I got to be honest, man, your months go by and I'm so busy with my own life and my own work and my own family and stuff. I don't even think of my neighbors most of the time, let alone be able to invite them over for coffee. And besides, in your heart of hearts, you don't think you've got what it takes to evangelize them anyway because you're so spiritually weak. You don't know what you're going to say. You don't know. Frankly, if, you, if they came into your home, they'd probably think you're crazy people anyway. So why would they want to hear what you have to say about Jesus? See, you know deep in your heart, you're sort of, you're paralyzed from acting on these tasks and taking them on because 
Because something is holding you back. What is it? What is it? Keep reading. Look at verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So Jonah, the miserable missionary, goes into Nineveh and he preaches a horrible sermon. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Turn and burn. You're afraid what you're going to say. Jonah, look what Jonah said. Look what he blurted out. He gave the typical, you know, the fire and brimstone sermon. God is mad at you. You better change your ways or he will bring the smackdown on you. And that may have been a lousy sermon, but if you look up in verse 2, it says that God told him to proclaim the message I, I have given to you. So God told Jonah, you need to tell these people that I am angry with them, that my wrath stands over them, and that the time is short for them to escape the coming judgment that I am going to lay down upon them. How's that for a sermon, hey? Look, I I can't spend too much time on this, but that is not a popular message to share in our culture today. I know that people don't like a judgy God. We don't want a judgy God in modern Western culture. We like a forgiving God. Talk about God's forgiveness. Don't talk about God's judgment. But you know what? That's kind of a, 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 a... That's kind of evidence of a cultural hubris, okay? Because if you go to other cultures, you know what they don't want to hear? They don't want to hear about your forgiving God. They want a God who is full of righteousness, who is holy, who knows right from wrong, and who is going to judge the wicked. And here in the Western world, we say, well, no, 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 that's not the way we want to think about God. We want to think about God as a forgiving God. And down in all those, those traditional cultures, they say, no, 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 we don't want to talk about God as a forgiving God. We want that, that righteous God. Who's right? Nobody. We're all wrong. You need both. You need a God who is righteous and holy and who looks at sin and hates it. And you need a God who has provided forgiveness for that sin. You need the God of the cross. Because you see, if you take away the judgment of God from the cross, what you have is a God who who is twisted and sadistic. Did he really send his own son to die as an example of living a sacrificial life? Is that the only way he could get it across to us, how to live a sacrificial life? He had to actually kill his own son on a cross in order to do that? But with a God of judgment who is holy and will never, ever, ever, ever let anybody get away with anything. The cross becomes a picture of astounding grace and mercy. That's just the aside thing. I had to to go there for a minute. But the main point is this. Look at verse 5 now. So, okay, picture Jonah walks a day into the city, which means he probably didn't get very far, and he just started telling people, 40 more days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. God, he pro- that's probably not all he said. He probably didn't have like a, a sandwich board and just walk through the city with a, a bell and it just said on there, 40 more days and then it will be overthrown. He probably expounded on it, but what he expounded was this judgment that was about to come from the God who created the heavens and the earth. He preached this message and then in verse 5 it says, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now again, Paul Tripp, who I mentioned earlier, he says that this this statement, the Ninevites believed God, 
is possibly one of the greatest understatements of the sovereign power of God in the entire Old Testament. Because you see, people who are driven by pleasure, people who are driven by their own agenda, people who are driven by their own kingdom, people who love sin, people like that, they do not believe God. That's the whole point. And yet, this entire city repented. They repented. They put on sackcloth, which is the clothing of denial and of repentance. And they began to fast. The king, when he found out about it, and this is very ironic, eh? It says, when Jonah's message reached the king, it doesn't even say that Jonah reached the king. The message reached the king, so probably Jonah had really nothing to do with it. This message began to spread like wildfire through the city, and even the king was freaked out and called a, 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 a nationwide call to repentance that was meant to bring people into, or, uh, sorry, this, hold on, uh, to, to bring them to, uh, to a state of utter uh, uh, casting themselves on the mercy of God. They put on sackcloth, like I mentioned earlier. Um, they, uh, that's the clothing of mourning. And they also put on, uh, had a fast, which is a, a form of self-denial, causing communion with God. And this is the nation of being, uh, uh, never denying yourself anything, but anything you want to do, you go ahead and do it. And they did this. And, and the point of this is, is that, look, Repentance is hard. Repentance means you have to actually look your sin in the face and you have to turn away from it. And all these people did it. And there's only one answer to the question, how was that possible? And it's because God accomplished the task. It was not, here's what I'm trying to get at. Remember when I said, why? Why are you afraid to handle your tasks? Because this situation, it was not little Job and big job. Rather, it was God called... Jonah went, God accomplished. See, the reason that we're so afraid of taking on the big tasks is because we have the wrong perspective. We think that we are called and we go and that's it. But that's not it. The reality is, is that when we obey the call and we go, God is the one who accomplishes the task. You're just fulfilling your call to be obedient by doing what you're supposed to do. Parents, it is not your job to make your children love Jesus. Maybe there's some parents here today who are weighed down by tremendous guilt because you have kids that have walked away from Jesus and you don't know what the heck you did wrong, but you're pretty sure it's all your fault. Now, maybe you did a lot wrong. And you should repent of that. But don't you ever believe that it was your job to make them a believer. You can't do that. Wives, it is not your job to make your husband an unattentive, loving husband. It's not our job as the church to turn an immoral culture, as we see it, into a moral one. It's not our job to make rebellious children behave. It's not our job to convert the entire city of Dundas. That's God's job. It's not your job or my job to make anybody do anything. It's our job to go. 
That's it. It's your job to obey. That's it. It's your job to answer yes. When God says, will you do this? That's it. And then do it. Now listen, I know, I, I don't want to be too self-referential, but this is one that like hits super close to home because I know what it's like to feel the pressure, to put the pressure like it's on you, buddy. When you plant a church, every visitor that doesn't come back, you go, what did I do wrong? What did I say wrong? Did I offend them? Should I have talked to them more? Should, I should have got their phone number. I should have been more pushy. No, I was too pushy. <laughs> you go crazy. How do I get them to buy in? How do I get them to give money? Only God can make any of this happen, guys. From the greatest to the least, it says in verse 5, every strata of society, even the animals. What's up with the animals? We'll talk more about the animals next week, but it's meant to show the comprehensive nature of repentance here. It was, it was society-wide. And finally, the, the evidence is right there in verse 9. Did this really happen? Yes. Who knows, it says in verse 9. This is the king talking. God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. This is unbelievable, okay? This is the king of Assyria from a pagan worldview that has taught him since he was a little, bit boy, little boy, if I do the right things, then God will do the right things. If I follow the rules, if I, and it can be disgusting stuff like sacrifice my children or go to a pagan uh, temple and have sex with a pagan prostitute, like whatever the practice is, as long as I fulfill the practice, then the God is obligated to fulfill the promises. And here is this pagan guy, he has completely flipped his worldview, and he says, there's no excuse, I can't go to this God and say, hey, you know, Jerusalem is like 500 miles away, how was I supposed to know that I was supposed to serve you and follow you? Hey, you know, he's from New York, I guess. He doesn't do any of that. He casts himself completely on the mercy of God. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he says, you know, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. How in the world, how in the world is a whole city turned around through a lousy sermon by this sniveling, recalcitrant, country bumpkin prophet? The answer is, is that when God calls, He also comes. He comes with you. Now I don't understand my outline anymore, so ignore that. Um, you're not alone. He puts big tasks in front of you and, and sometimes puts you in a big bad world. I know that. But do you remember Acts chapter 1? Do you remember Acts chapter 1? 
You know, Jesus has come to the world. He has demonstrated his power as the Son of God. He has raised people from the dead. He has walked on water. He has turned a little bit of food into multitude, into a feast for, for multitudes of people. And then he went to the cross, and everything seemed to be lost. But it was the greatest moment of redemption in the history of the universe. And, and the devil was defeated, and, and death was defeated in his death because he, three days later, he rose again from the dead. And now he's resurrected, and he stands with his disciples, and his disciples. Disciples are, are excited and they think, now we're really going to usher in the new kingdom. And they, said, they say to Jesus, Jesus, are you now going to usher in the kingdom of Israel? Are we going to take it back? Are we going to establish this and, and bring the new creation into order? And Jesus says, no, not at this time. You've conquered the grave, Jesus. Let's go to work. He says, not yet. He says, I'm leaving and I'm going to the Father. And you guys, you little guys, you followers of mine, I want you to go into the world and I want you to take my message, the message of me having lived and died and rose again, I want you to take that message to the world. I want you to go to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What must that have felt like for them? What? The whole world? There's 11 of us standing here. But then he doesn't leave them alone. He says, wait, because the Holy Spirit is coming. And when he comes on you, he will come on you with power. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the God of the universe himself. He is going to go with you because he will be in you. Now, let me give you a picture. How courageous would be you be in raising your kids, in, in loving your husband, in pursuing the career, in sharing your faith with your neighbor, if Jesus was standing there right beside you as you did it. Would there be anything that you couldn't tackle if he said, start this new venture, but I'm coming along? Corey started a new venture recently. And that's nerve-wracking. You start a business and you think, I hope this thing works, right? And Corey, I, you don't have to answer this question, but how worried would you be about it if, if Jesus was at the desk next door and saying, yeah, we're starting this new venture, Corey. It's going to be great. Would you still be sitting there going, oh, I don't know, Lord. You'd be like, I got you with me. But friends, do you not realize that the reason Jesus ascended was so that you'd have him with you. The Spirit of Christ is with you and is in you. And you need not fear a thing. Stop measuring your potential. Measure his. I'm preaching to myself right now. And then go read about a guy named William Carey. He's famous for a, a quote, okay? He said, um, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Now, if I tell you to do that, you're like, yeah, okay, Pastor Paul. But you read about a guy like that, and you know he's got the goods to make such a powerful statement as that. You can attempt great things for God and expect great things from him. <laughs> 